0: celebration of starting a new year. Uh, the beginning of a new year is kind of significant, and we always pay special attention to that. But you know, in reality, uh, that's just sort of a arbitrary man-made distinction. We start the year in January. Uh, we could as easily uh, started the year in June or October. It really is an a artificial distinction as to where you begin the, the months of the year. The year is, of course, regulated by the tracking of the seasons, but where we start a new year could be anywhere. You know, sometimes financial institutions have what they call a fiscal year, and it's not it doesn't start in January. It starts at some other time and ends at another time. And so that's just sort of arbitrary, where we begin a new year. But it's still a sense of beginning, and we celebrate it, and it is something we pay attention to. Today, though... I want us to think about the ultimate beginning, the real beginning. And I want us to go all the way back to Genesis 1. You know, of course, that Genesis 1 gives us the record of God making everything. The Latin term for what God did is ex nihilo. And what it means is out of nothing. God started with nothing and made everything that we see, everything that we experience. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, It says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, God didn't just start and refashion things that already existed. He started with nothing and made everything. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1, it records God said, as He spoke into existence everything that is in the physical universe. But this morning in our lesson, we want to concentrate uh, on what is surely the crowning act of God's creation week, and that is the creation of man. It says there in Genesis chapter 1 that man was created in the image of God. And we might ask, what does that mean? And that's going to be our study this morning. The text for our study comes from verses 26 and 27, Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. We want to look at that text this morning and learn what I think are some important truths that are conveyed there as we read about the beginning of mankind, God creating man. Thank you for being here this morning. We appreciate everyone who's present. We have visitors and we're very grateful for your presence. We hope we can convey that to you. We want you to feel welcome here and we hope that you'll come back every time you have a chance and we certainly are open to your questions. If you wonder what we're doing here and why we're doing it that way, please ask and we'll try to give you a Bible answer. We're trying hard here at College View to be a church like the church that you read about in the pages of your New Testament. That being the case, we believe that we should be following the New Testament very carefully, and we're trying to do that. We want to have Bible authority for everything we do, a book, chapter, and verse kind of authority. Uh, Thus saith the Lord. This is the way God wants it done. That's why we're doing it that way. That's our goal. That's what we're striving for. And so if you have any questions, by all means, please ask them. Thanks for being here this morning. We're glad for every single person who's present today. Let's talk about these verses in Genesis chapter 1. And in these verses is the expression that God created man in his image, created in the image of God. I think in these familiar verses, there are several important points that we should bring out. And the first of them has to do with the pronouns that are used. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God used plural pronouns there, and the question might be asked, why? Why would he use plural pronouns? Let us make man in our image. Well, some say that perhaps God was speaking to the angels. There were angels present. And God said, let us make man in our image. But that doesn't seem to be a very workable answer because nowhere in the Bible is it taught that God and angels share the same nature, that God is like the angels, that God is maybe just the highest of the angels. That's not in the Bible, is it? In fact, there's some distinction shown between angels and men in their very basic nature and characteristics. And so I don't believe that God was saying, okay, you angels, let's get busy and make God in our image. I don't believe that's the answer. Some say that God was using what is sometimes referred to as the plural of majesty. you understand what that means? That's, that comes from the idea of what a king might say. Uh, Uh, we will give the people uh, gifts and food. He's talking about himself, but he uses the plural pronoun we. We will do it, and he's talking about himself. Or it is our decision that this and that will happen, but he's actually talking about himself, and he uses the, the plural of majesty. When a king speaks that way, that's what that is referred to. I to tell you, that doesn't seem to be a very workable answer here in explaining why God would use the plural pronouns in Genesis chapter 1 because we might have to ask the question, why would God follow the pattern of human kings in speaking in that fashion when there weren't even any human kings yet? There were never any kings to have ever established such a pattern of speech. Uh, and furthermore, Even among kings that are referred to in the Old Testament, you never hear them using that kind of terminology. That that was something that came along later, and it's not recorded in the Bible. That doesn't seem to be an answer. The plural of majesty doesn't seem to be an answer here. I think the only uh, workable explanation is that this statement is an emphasis on the three-person Godhead. God was speaking to the the Father was speaking to the other members of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit and the son we believe that the scriptures teach a three-person godhead father son and holy spirit in fact we know that the spirit of god was present there in genesis chapter one because in genesis chapter one beginning at verse one in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of god moved upon the face of the waters. we know that the spirit was there says so right and we know from the New Testament in John chapter one, that the Son was there. In John chapter one, verse one, "In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made." So the Word was with God in the beginning, and as was a participant in these creative acts. Now we understand, but someone might ask, who was that when it refers to the word? Well, if you have any doubt about that, skip down to verse 14. It says, this is John 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, there we have the Son present during the creation. Father, Son, Spirit. The three persons of the Godhead. Now, don't be confused by the idea of three-person Godhead we, we still acclaim as the Bible plainly teaches, that there is but one God. How can there be one God, but three persons in the Godhead? We've studied that before, but a very simple answer is that that expression, God, when used in that sense, is used in the same sense that we talk about humankind. There's just one humankind. Now, there are many who have those attributes right here in this assembly this morning. Uh, there are a num- There are over a hundred of us. It looks like the number this morning is 135. There are 135 of us all here, but we're all of the same kind. We're all human, right? We're different individuals, but we all possess the same attributes of humanity. Well, in, re- in reference to God, there are three beings that possess those characteristics of deity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and so that's what's being referenced here. And in the very first chapter of the Bible, we see the three-person Godhead described. Now, there's more here in these verses. What about the verbs that are used here? God was going to make man in his image. God created him. He created them, it says. What about create and make? What about those verbs? I believe that those verbs prove that man's not an accident of evolution. You understand what the general theory of evolution teaches about how we got here? The general theory of evolution says the earth was here. It's been here for billions of years. But at one time in the ancient, ancient past, millions and millions of years ago, all the right elements came together. Now, we don't know what those elements necessarily were, but somehow they all came together, and in a process that we don't understand can't duplicate somehow energy acted upon that combination of matter in just such a way that life sprang from non-living matter. Well, we can't replicate it in the best laboratory conditions, but, but we're supposed to believe that that happened now. We don't know how, but we, we have to believe that that happened if we're going to believe evolution. It's called the spontaneous generation of life from non-living matter. Now, after you've got that first living cell. We're also supposed to believe that from that first living cell that came from non-living matter, all of the myriad of life forms that we see in the earth today have evolved. This happened, that happened, there was this mutation, there was this freak accident, and over a period of time, by a process, again, that can't be duplicated, never has been confirmed or proven, we're supposed to believe that all of the life forms that exist on the earth today, including us... Humans simply evolved. Accidents of nature, so to speak. No, that simply is not true. Here in Genesis chapter 1, we understand that everything that was made, including man, was made by the creative work of God. I tell you, look around and witness the amazing creation where we live and consider our own bodies, as, as we said, the crowning act of God's creative work And then just try to imagine that this happened by chance or accident. It's just too incredible to even be fathomed that it could happen by accident. Fourteen times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as our maker. God made us. We did not evolve. In Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah seemed to be shocked that there were some who had enough arrogance... To deny God as their creator and maker in Isaiah chapter 29, (coughs) look at verse (coughs) 16. Excuse me. Isaiah 29 verse 16, surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he hath no understanding? Isaiah there is saying could, could a a clay vessel say I wasn't made. The the potter didn't make me, I made myself. That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? And in the same way, it's just crazy to imagine that we were not made or created by an intelligent being, God. This passage and lots of things that we read in the Scripture, but also an abundance of evidence in nature itself, points out the fact that man was made by God. Man and all of the universe was created at his command. All right, then, what about this expression, image and likeness? God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? Well, let's first point out that it does not mean that we are like him in the sense that he has physical similarities or we have physical similarities to him, that he looks like us, that he might even possess a physical body such as we possess. Brigham Young, the famous Mormon leader, taught that. He actually taught that God had a physical body and ours is like His. And he believed that that's what this expression meant. But God is not a physical being. God is a spiritual being. In Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, His disciples were marveling when they first saw Him in the resurrected state. They didn't know what to make of it. And he was proving to them that his physical body had been resurrected and that they weren't just seeing a ghost or something. In Luke chapter 24 at verse 39, he said to them, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. Do you get that? And so Jesus said that spirits don't have bodies. Uh, God doesn't have a body like ours. And so when this says that we were made in the image or likeness of God, it's not saying that our physical body is similar to His physical body, that He has hands with five fingers, that He has a nose and two ears. That's not what it's talking about, okay? Although there may be some, and there have been some, who mistake that. That's not what it means. What it means, and this is very important for us to understand our similarity to God, what it means is, first of all, that we are beings who have the ability to reason, to think things through. Contrast man with animals. Sometimes we try to convey human thought and action upon animals, especially maybe a pet in our home if we have a cat or a dog. We, try, we may try to imagine them as being human. They're not human, and they don't think like we think. Animals act based upon instinct. Animals react based upon the instincts that are born into them but man reasons man thinks and that's a notable difference between us Uh, and so our ability to reason to logically think about things is part of our similarity to God made in his image Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 God said to Israel come let us reason together God said God didn't say that to horses and cows God said that to people. Come, let us reason together. Look just for a moment in Acts chapter 17 at the work of the Apostle Paul as he went about preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, at verse 2, it says, Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. He taught the facts. He provided the evidence. He asked them to draw conclusions. He reasoned with them. Man has the ability to reason or to think. In verse 17 of that same chapter, it says, Therefore he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons and in the marketplace daily and with them that met with him, He disputed with them. He made the arguments. He asked them to draw the conclusion. Skip over to chapter 18. These are all things that happened on the second missionary journey of Paul. In Acts 18 at verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks Skip down to verse 19. He came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And over and over again, as we read about this work of the Apostle Paul as he preached the Gospel, it was on that level. He taught them. He gave the proof and the evidence. He made the arguments. And he asked them to use their logic, their reasoning abilities, and draw the appropriate conclusions. And so man is in the image of God in the sense that he's able to reason, to think, to put two and two together, and to make logical conclusions. That's part of what makes us in the image of God. Another thing that makes us in the image or likeness of God is that we have the power to choose. Sometimes when you read various authors, they'll talk about this as volitional power. That's just a $64 word that means we have the the Power to choose to make choices. And so as beings with volitional power, man has this, and this is the ability then that we possess to honor God in obedience rather than disobedience. We have a choice to make. You're going to honor God, your Creator? You're going to do what He asks you to do? Will you be obedient? Or are you going to dishonor Him by being disobedient? It's interesting to me that God did not make us like pre-programmed robots. That we just go through life doing pre-designated acts. Everything has already been programmed into us and we just do as we have been instructed to do without question. That's not the way we are made. Now, there are some folks who think that's so. For instance, some atheists believe that we just are... Uh, victims of nature that we just react to things that happen around us and that that those reactions are much like an animal just acting by instinct that's not true we already proved that furthermore there are even some religious people who believe that everything about us is predestined or preset and we're just going through the motions of what God already ordained would be so predestination now that's not so either the Bible doesn't teach that in fact Lots of verses in the Scripture suggest this idea that we have choice. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, and some of the final words of the Scripture, Revelation 22:17, the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come and let him that heareth say, Come and let him that is athirst come and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will, whoever whosoever will make the choice, come to God and receive the blessings that He offers." Uh, we are made in the image of God in the sense that we have this power to choose. It's a, it's a thing we should be grateful for, but it's also an awesome thing to understand the responsibility to choose right, to choose to honor God and obeying Him uh, in our lives. Another thing that makes us in the image of God is that we have a basic sense of right and wrong or a basic sense of morality. It wouldn't, unfortunately, it wouldn't be an unusual thing to read about some horrible, brutal murder that might even happen right here in our own immediate community. Some horrible person goes out and kills another individual. And you know what the reaction of people is? And they don't have to be religious people. You might find an atheist out on the street and you tell him about this brutal murder that's just occurred and that atheist will say, that's horrible, that's not right. Those kind of things shouldn't happen. Well, on what basis? On what basis does a person who doesn't even know or acknowledge God, on what basis does that person say, that's a horrible thing that happened? Well, I believe it's because we have in us this innate sense of morality, this basic sense of what is right or wrong. Again, I would contrast men to animals in that. Would an animal have the same sense of outrage when some brutal killing has taken place? You know, out there in the animal world, uh Monty shoots a deer, and the other deer who are around say, did you see that? Isn't that a terrible thing? Uh, they don't think that way, do they? Because it's not in them. God put that in us. We call it a conscience, even. And, and think of the various expression that men use, and again, not necessarily religious men use. Uh, listen, don't cut in line. Wait your turn. Or someone says... Don't pick on that poor person. Don't pick on that un, uh, undeserving person. Or someone says, you have more than enough, you should share some with someone else. Or something of that nature. Where did this sense of right and wrong come from? Well, I believe the Bible suggests that God put it in us. It's part of what makes us created in His image. In Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 verse 14, it says, when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law or a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Even to those who weren't in a relationship with God, they had a basic sense of right and wrong, and Paul says it was written in their hearts. God put it there. God put in us this basic sense of morality right and wrong. That's part of what makes us in His image. Finally, let me suggest to you another thing that makes us in His image is our eternal soul. There's a part of us that will live on and never die, that will continue to exist. Now, the difference between us and God in this matter is that God has no beginning or end. We have a beginning, but our soul will have no end. We will live on eternally. In Ecclesiastes, uh we read what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes said in chapter 12, verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. It speaks of us dying, growing old and dying in this context. And Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. In other words, our physical body will return to dust and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Our spirit will continue on throughout eternity. That, of course, is very much what makes us in the image of God. Now, what about this last thing? There's a part of you. There's your eternal spirit. There's your inner man that's not going to die. It's going to continue on. We understand, of course, that this is the part of us that will face God in final judgment. And that's why we would end our message this morning with a plea for preparation. Why should you prepare for judgment? Well, because you're in the image of God. And there's a part of you that's never going to die. And that being the case, then you need to make certain preparations. Do you believe what we've talked about this morning? Do you believe that you are created in the image of God? That you are distinct and different from anything else that God created in this entire physical universe? Do you believe that? I hope that you do. Certainly the evidence is there to support that conclusion. But if you believe that, then again, one of your human abilities that you have because you're in the image of God is that you have the ability to put two and two together and come up with reasonable, logical conclusions. It's not logical for you to believe in God but not make preparation to meet Him in judgment. That's not logical. You need to think about that. If you're in a situation where you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of past sins, to come into a relationship with God, to have the hope of heaven in eternity, if you've never done those things necessary to become a Christian, You need to make that decision. Upon hearing the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. If we can help you in your obedience this morning, we're ready to do so. We'd be glad and we'd be excited to do so. If you're a Christian already, but you slipped back and you've not been faithfully serving your maker, come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.